You're listening to The Leaf Report with Canadian Press National Hockey writer Jonas Siegel and the Athletic TO's James Myrtle. Okay, James, it's just before All-Star break. Um, it's like 40-something games in the season. I don't want to say how many, although we're recording this on a Tuesday, so it doesn't really matter. 45? Yeah, I know. Um, so we have a lot to talk about. We'll talk a little bit about James Van Riemsdyk. We'll talk about who might lead the Leafs in scoring. We'll talk about uh, Morgan Riley and his potential as a number one defenseman. He's obviously out right now. Um, we might talk a little bit about the guy you're getting the most questions about on your athletic mailbag. Uh, that would be Frederick Gauthier. Actually, it'd be Kevin Chattenkirk. Uh, but let's start with Nazem Kadri. He scored twice Tuesday night. He's got 20 goals. That matches a career high. He has 101 goals now. People love those round numbers. I guess it's not round anymore. But what sticks out to you most about the way he's scoring or the number of goals he scored this year as opposed to last year when he had 260 shots, scored 17 times in 76 games? He's already eclipsed that in basically half the time. What sticks out about his year? The power play. No follow-up? Well, so so let me get into that a little bit. Um, I asked Babcock about it after the game on Tuesday night, and he said the one big change is how they're using Kadri on the power play. Uh, I've yet to dig into that. I'm planning to do that. You have have already gone into it. Uh, he's being used in the middle of the ice now as opposed to the, kind of that half-wall position. What do you think has made it more effective for Kadri? If you look at the shot locations that Kadri's got this year and which and the goals and the I mean he's got 10 power play goals already after 45 games he's on pace for whatever that is 18 power play goals this season his career high before this year on the power play was 7 goals he was used primarily as a setup man because I think a lot of people look at Kadri not the biggest guy not the hardest shot not a guy who's going to be blasting in a one timer or whatever people look at him as as kind of a a playmaking centerman Babcock sees him, puts him in the middle of the ice in kind of the upper slot is what I would call it. They've created, the power play is different. Like it always used to be a power play was two defensemen at the point. I always remember the traditional power plays being like what the St. Louis Blues had with Al McInnes and and Chris Pronger. I don't know if that's the team you remember, but like the mid nineties, I was, was probably my peak interest level in the NHL. I was watching like a stupid amount of games. And then when there weren't games on for me to watch, I would just be playing NHL 96 on Sega Genesis or something like that. So I played it so many times it stopped working and then I would update the rosters like with the league and there was too much data and the, the Genesis cartridge would like reset because it was, I was putting so much information into it every day. Um, tangent. But so like the, the, the power play that I always have burned into my brain that I watched, you know, watching junior hockey and whatever is two defensemen at the point. Um, uh, a center working as kind of a, a playmaker in the middle, and then the wingers would rotate between the half wall, behind the net, front of the net, kind of based on where the puck was going, strong side, weak side. The Leafs are using a diamond formation, which is more common in the NHL now. Jake Gardner is the number one defenseman on the power play, which is a bit, I don't want to say different because he did it last year a little bit as well. So you don't have two two players along the blue line then they've got austin matthews and william nylander on the wings you've got kadri right in the middle as a centerpiece player and you've got komarov standing in front of the goalie and what that's allowed kadri to do is he can either take a pass from matthews or a pass from uh nylander who are both very good passers 
or he can kind of clean up the garbage when there's a rebound off of either a, a player's shin pad, which I think we've seen him score goals that way this year, or if there's a, a rebound off the goalie. And so Kadri's shooting percentage on the power play is ridiculously high. I, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's not sustainable because he scored on like half of his shots or something like that. So he's probably not going to continue at this pace, but he's tied with Sidney Crosby right now. He's second in the NHL in power play goals. That's one of the biggest reasons he's on pace for almost 40 goals this year is that half of his production is coming on, on that power play unit. But I guess my response to that would be, should we change then the levels that we might expect from Kadri as a goal scorer? Cause that would lead me to indicate that maybe it needs some refining because he was kind of around 17, 18 goals the last few years. Maybe this makes him closer to like a 25 goal guy, you know, in the next couple of years moving forward. Um, I don't know. Is there anything more to it than that besides the change in the power play? Like he's shooting a little bit less this year. I looked at the numbers. I think it's like 3.13 as opposed to like 3.42, something like that. Uh, he's playing in different situations lately. You know, he was matched up against Goudreau uh, on Tuesday night, but, you know, Matthews has started handling number, number one lines. He's playing with Neander. Do you think any of these little circumstantial changes will make a difference for his offensive game moving forward, playing with better players, not playing against as good competition? Like, do you see him? That wasn't well phrased, but do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you think any of these other factors will change the dynamic around his numbers offensively? You didn't read my story. This is my story was all about all this stuff. It's all about basically what I wrote was the last four years, Kadri has been a good player in the NHL. He's been a top line player towards the low end of being a top line player. He's, he's around, he's between 80 and a hundredth in possession, uh, in primary points at even strength in, uh, points per 60 on the power play last four years combined. He's been in there and he, but he's done that on bad Leafs teams. He's done that with pretty bad Leafs teammates. He's almost never played with JVR or Phil Kessel when Kessel was here, or he played a lot of minutes with Leo Komarov has been his number one winger over the previous four years. Uh, Joffrey Lupul was number two. I mean, you can we can argue about. I mean, some of those years Lupul was a good player, and some of those years he wasn't. Uh, but then you look at some of the other wingers he's had. It's like Mike Santarelli, uh, David Clarkson was up there for a lot of minutes. Uh, Kuhlman and Kuhlman really struggled offensively when he was playing with Kadri. You know, it's not like he's been playing with powerhouse players. I think that, and the other thing too is that last year he was in a very, very defensive shutdown role, and that was, I think, part of what hurt him offensively. So if Matthews is taking the tough matchups, if Kadri's in a more offensive role, which I think he is going to be, and he's playing with William Nylander, who I think is a, a rising star in terms of offensively, and he's playing on the first power play unit, although they've been moving around on the power play in that high slot kind of role, I think he can be a. You know, obviously this year he's on pace for 36 goals, but I think what you're saying is accurate. He's probably a 25-goal guy consistently, 60-ish points. 60 points puts you in the top, puts you about 40th in NHL scoring. So that's that's a really effective player. Well, and then that gets into the contract that they signed him to in the offseason. It looks more and more like we thought it would be, a really good bargain deal. Uh, but I just think you hit on something that I think is interesting when you look at like a lot of different players on this team. The fact that they have now basically three lines where there's a, a legit threat, I think that has like this domino effect on everyone because now for the opposition, like you have to decide, okay, who do I use my top pair against? Do I use it against Matthews? Do I use it against Van Riemsdyk and Marner? 
to use it against Neander. And so what might happening for might happen for the Kadri line is they're like the third option. Like if I'm a if I'm a team and I'm looking at my matchups, they're third on the chart. Like especially with the way that, that Marner is playing. Um, that kind of brings me to, to James Van Riemsdyk. He's on pace for like 70 points. He's on pace for career highs in basically every category. Is any part of you, I know you said before, you don't kind of see him long-term based on the contract that he's going to get fitting into their big picture. Is any part of you thinking differently about that now? Or are you feeling the same way about his potential as a piece of their future long-term? The problem is the contract, I think, for me. I mean, I know you've been writing. Let, let's. Why, why don't we start talk about what you've been talking to him and writing about him? And I think some of that stuff. I get the sense the fan base really likes him and wants to keep him. I get the sense the organization likes him. Maybe you can get into some of the intangible stuff. Well, I think it was you actually who might have like mentioned something to me at one point where you're like, I've heard like he's like, or maybe it was Chris Johnson uh, that he's like this big obsessive nerd with hockey stuff and like is really thorough about those details and I just started talking to him and you know Tyler Bozak primarily and what I found is like he's very very meticulous like every little detail he wants to know he wants to know about his sticks he wants to know about his skates I don't know vitamins shampoo like every little thing is very precise for James Van Riemsdyk Uh, I talked to his trainer you know that he worked with for six years he said he was someone who you know, took it seriously, had to learn, you know, what it was like to be an NHL player, to train, eat, all that stuff um, as a kid coming out of New Hampshire. Um, so, yeah, I, I just think it's interesting when you when you kind of look into the background of a guy who's gradually gotten better uh, and it kind of gives you a window into maybe why. I don't know. Was there anything that stuck out for you? Yeah, I think that that's, that's right. I, I think a lot of people think of, there's not enough talk about how NHL players can develop. I think they can go you we've we've seen it with the Leafs young players. They can go different ways. I mean, you come in with a certain skill set and a certain talent level and then the amount of work you put into that if if this would never happen, but if if an 18 or a 19-year-old player came to me and said uh what advice do you have for me as an NHL player? I would say you have this amazing opportunity to have like a dream life and make a lot of money and like just commit to this, commit to this, to the lifestyle you need to. And it's, it's getting harder, I think, because I was listening to, I think I was listening to Overdrive and they were talking about this, about how Jeff O'Neill, O'Dog was saying that the players now are kind of like machines. They're like hockey machines. And like the guys that are making it now are training year round and their bodies are, their bodies are a temple and they're doing all of these things. And I mean, there's only 700 guys that can be regulars in the NHL. It's so hard to get there. So I think that you need a little bit of that peculiarity that someone like Van Riemsdyk has, you know, he was such a raw product when he was with the flyers and they didn't, they, they wanted him to be something he wasn't. They wanted him to be this big bruising guy, but he's really refined his game. I mean, he's got, 
his hands are so good for a big guy. It kind of reminds me, I remember watching Todd Bertuzzi in like 0203 and 0304 when he went on that huge run with Marcus Nasland. And Bertuzzi was a huge guy. And I know he's like more of a bruiser maybe than Van Riemsdyk and more of a, and a different personality. But he just had beautiful hands for a big man. And it's in a game like hockey where you need power and you need all those different elements. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day if when I read your story and I sent it out and I get in the some of the responses I got were about his defensive game. Like if Van Reems, could ever improve his defensive game to even where he was like a little bit above average, what an amazing player he would be. Then he would probably be worth the money. The problem is, is he's not a great possession player. He's not great in his own end. You kind of have to play him on a sheltered line. It feels like, yeah. and for whatever reason, I'm not sure if Babcock has reached him on the defensive side or not. I mean, do you, th- I don't know. I, the first half of last year, he, it was when he impressed me the most in terms of being more of an all-around player. He had to do a lot more on his own. He had to carry a line a lot more on his own than I had seen before. And I'm not really seeing that same player as, as last year. He's kind of, he feels more like a complimentary piece. And I don't want to pay a complimentary piece a seven-year deal at $7 million a year, which is what I think he's going to get. It's really interesting because he brought up, like a bunch of stuff didn't make the story. And he brought up little changes he's made to try to become a better defensive player, uh, like just where he's positioned in the defensive zone to try to get pucks out, where he's positioned in the offensive zone, trying to be kind of closer to the pile. Uh, but a few things from that. One, I think what's really interesting is the effect that, and like you and I sometimes think this stuff is overrated by the media, but the effect that veterans can have on younger players. Basically, the only reason this kind of came about for him, not the only reason, but a big reason was he like he saw how Chris Pronger trained. He saw how Ian LePerriere, who played forever and wasn't really like this super talented player, but he saw how all these guys trained, and that kind of influenced him. And one of the things that Bozak brought up was now he sees younger guys in the Toronto room picking up on what Van Riemsdyk does and doing it themselves. And like that's like the ripple effect that I think management and coaches think veterans can have and why they sometimes feel that it's important to have them around the other thing is van reemsike said the big thing for him was he feels like any way he can get an advantage like any way he's always looking for like he's always constantly adding things to his routine taking things out of his routine anything that he thinks might give him an advantage and one of the things that he he told me with regard to the vitamins because apparently he's got this massive container of vitamins is he he started working with a chiropractor in Toronto uh, who practices something called functional medicine. I think that's what it's called. And basically, from what I could gather from looking at it, functional medicine is like, I think it's it's trying to avoid disease and like avoid stuff before it gets to the point where you're in that position. I may not be explaining that right. And I guess maybe he took some tests to look at what his body was absorbing and what it wasn't. And I guess that kind of explains why he's got all these different vitamins because maybe stuff isn't being absorbed. Anyway, um, you have a thought on that. Did you ever read that story? I can't remember who did it because I read it a while ago about Steve Nash in the NBA and how he dramatically changed his diet and like he completely took all these different things out and then he became known for like carrying this little bag of like nuts and like stuff around with him after every game and so he can you know he he was always like such a really skinny guy and he was a small guy for the nba and so he went through some kind of testing process like that where they saw how his body was like processing what he ate or whatever and he went into like this really holistic natural kind of and he said it that and he, i think he said that 
after that point was when he started winning like the league MVPs and stuff like that. That that really helped. And Djokovic went through something like that yeah. in tennis too. He completely changed how he was eating because, oh man, I can't remember where he's from. Was he Croatian or something like that? But like the way the food he grew up on, his like body couldn't process it. He had to like switch his diet and everything. And then that's when he became, you know, the best player in the world. I think it was gluten for Djokovic, if I remember. Like he eliminated that from his diet. But one of the things that Prentice, uh, Van Riemsdyk trainer, and a guy who's trained like, who's most known, and you knew this, uh, for training Marty St. Louis, and he trains all kinds of NHLers now. But one of the things he said is once players started getting used to his diet, like of of all the little tips he would give them about, you know, like eliminating sugar, eating different carbohydrates, different proteins, he said they would, it would be hard for them at first because they have like this 65, 70% rule where you try to eat good 70% of the time. He said after a few weeks, they would call him and they would say, I feel so much better. Like it can really feel a difference. And I'm sure anybody in any walk of life, when you stop eating something that you know is crap for you, you feel better. And and I think it's interesting with Van Riemsdyk that it shows you how he's tried to integrate that into his life and make himself a better player. I don't know if like he was second overall pick behind Kane. I'd have to go back and look at that draft and see where he ranks. But he's become a good player. But I think I agree with you. I think he's more complimentary than the driving force of that line. Like the guy who drives the line is Marner and he's 19. We're off on another, a tangent again, but I think it's maybe because I'm tired and I was up working till two 30 in the morning last night. But have you ever done one of those? Like where you like cut completely. So I, I did this one time. I stopped eating sugar, like no sugar at all. Like not in anything, like not in any additives or whatever. And yeah, you feel like you feel different. It it was it was really interesting, and you also realize how much freaking sugar you eat in so many different things. But I I can't remember how long I did it. I think I did it for like three months, no sugar, and it was it was amazing. Like just that, and you felt better. Well, what did you feel like? What was the difference? Did you have like more energy, sleep better, like any of that stuff? Yeah, you feel like you feel um, less sluggish. I think is the right word. Like, yeah, more energy. It, it's like having a coffee without a coffee or something like that. Like, I think sugar is kind of weird if you think about it, but it's like they found it in one place, whatever it was, when they came to North America, right? Didn't they find it in the Caribbean in one place, and it's like one plant, and then all of a sudden now it's in freaking everything, and that that's all we... Like, it's just this sweetener that's... Anyway, we're on a tangent, but like covering... I covered the Olympics uh, in London, and I wrote about the athletes and some of their training and stuff, and like the way that Olympians eat is the way that hockey players are now beginning to eat. Gary Roberts has brought all this in. When, when I was at the Globe and Mail, I did a story on the hockey diet, and I talked to Gary Roberts, and he gave me this big book of all his his recipes. I don't think I still have it, but it was so interesting. And Gary Roberts is the most extreme example. He makes all of his players go. There's like this one natural food store in just north of Toronto that's like crazy expensive, and he makes them buy like chia seeds and like all the stuff I've like never heard of and make these milkshakes and the milkshakes probably cost like $24 each but the players can afford it but I bet you Gary Roberts probably spends I don't know he's like the way he eats is just and he was when I when I did the story he had like a five-year-old and he was his five-year-old was eating like this and it's just it's pretty interesting but that's kind of the where it's going like they're just they're trying to maximize their performance of their bodies to the absolute limit that's what the olympians are doing that's what nhl players are starting to do and you almost need to have a little bit of like a personality tick that allows you to be able to do that and i think van reemstek has that well it was interesting i asked bozak like if any of this stuff had rubbed off on him and he's 
older and a veteran. He's like, no, like I, I basically have the things I like to do. Like I like to get treatment. He does this Norma tech thing, which are like these compression heat pants kind of thing that you wear the night before a game. But I don't know. It's, it's interesting. The effect that that can all have. And, and Van Riemsdyk said exactly what you said. He said like your body for an NHL player is what is going to sustain you to a long career. And his teammates give him a hard time about it. Like they chirp him, but he said, you know, hopefully in 10 years, I'm the one who's laughing with a long career. And the other thing I just wanted to bring up while you were talking, um, we're not seeing as many, I guess like there's a handful of guys who are succeeding well into their thirties, but we're seeing the league get younger and younger. And maybe that's something you need to do to have a longer career now. All those guys, I think, I think almost all of those guys that are playing their late thirties. They're freaks for all this stuff, like Chara and Marty St. Louis and Aginla, and all those guys that are surviving. Or I bet you, I don't know about Luongo, but I bet you he is too. Most of the guys that are going to make it, I'm trying. There's got to be some other names, but like most of the time, Yager would be one. Like a lot of them, they're they have extreme training and diet and lifestyle habits that that allow them to do that. And I think that's going to be the norm if you're going to play past. 33 especially because the game is so speed based now like if you're going to stay fast you can't be sluggish you can't have all you got to be elite training and and all of that okay so we'll move on um and we want to talk a little bit about kind of what's happening atop the leafs scoring board uh for a bit there it was matthews in front leading the team in scoring it was van reemsdyke for a little bit Right now, at least heading into a back-to-back that they have with Detroit and Philadelphia, it's Mitch Marner, first on the team in scoring, first among all rookies in scoring. Um, So I wanted to ask you, we were talking about it a little bit the other day, who we think will end up as the leading scorer. You and I might have talked about this, I don't know, a few weeks back, and both came to the obvious conclusion that it was going to be Matthews. Is it possible that it could be Marner at the end of the year who has 70 points and is the guy who ranks first and maybe Matthews or Van Riemsdyk is just like second or third, a couple points back. 100%. 100% Marner can lead the team in scoring. He's been one of the highest scoring players in the NHL since December 15th. He's got more than a point a game. I think he's got 18 points in 16 games. I think he's first or second in assists since December 15th. What I'm seeing, and it, it seems like they're like they've moved Kadri to that power play unit a little bit. I wonder if they're going to start making that the number one power play unit with the way that JVR plays at the net as opposed to Komarov at the net. You know, it's it's interesting. I was looking at the power play schemes a lot for the Kadri story, and it's like they're, Babcock's really only using eight players on the power play. You know, the other guys... So he's he's kind of... Anyway, it's not like they have two set units. It's like they have eight guys and they, they shuffle them around a little bit. But Marner... His vision is so impressive. I know we did a story at The Athletic. Jack Hahn did it with video work and stuff like that about how his goal-scoring technique might not be at an elite level, and there's a few things that he can change to score more goals. But maybe Marner's just going to be really, really good setup guy or really good passer, and then maybe he's only going to be like a 20, 20 to 25 goal guy and like 50 assists. And maybe he's just like making a lot of things happen for his teammates. Like some of the passes he's making, I don't see. He's seeing players on the other side of like cross-ice passes when there is traffic, but he's getting them through a lot. He passes hard. He passes very, very accurately. You know, I think part of what makes the Leafs fast is they're so good at moving the puck right now. Gardner's good at moving the puck. Riley's good at moving the puck. But Nylander and Matthews and Marner are very, very good passers. 
Well, he's made like a bunch of plays that you're just like, oh, wow. Like, how did he make that pass? Like, there was even recently, it wasn't the greatest one that he's made all season, but uh, I think it was in the game against Ottawa or Buffalo, or whatever. And he was in the corner. And he just spun around and whipped it to Bozak in the middle. I was like, how did he see him? And he's had, I think he's had three, three assist games already. And on a couple of those nights, he just made these passes where you're like, how did he find that guy? What's interesting is like Neander is also a fantastic passer. And yet they kind of do it in different ways. Do you know what I mean? Like they, Neander has like this vision. He's always got his head up. He, he's got a really soft touch. And Mara's just like shifty. And I don't know. He's interesting to watch that way. Uh, I still think it'll probably be Matthews. But I don't know. Like I, I haven't looked at the breakdown as to who gets more. Like Matthews gets most of his goals at even strength. I haven't looked at how many points Marner's gotten on the power play as opposed to even strength. But if their power play keeps functioning like this, I don't know. Like maybe it's easier for him to set up more goals than it is for Matthews to potentially score forty. What do you think? I think if you look at all situations and you go points per minute, like points per sixty, I think Marner is like top twenty in the NHL. Like I think it's 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 pretty dramatic. And I think that that power play unit is actually outproducing the other power play unit. So just be pretty interesting to look into that, but. What I was going to say on on Marner is, I mean, if you're a setup guy and with who he's playing with, he's playing with two pretty good offensive players and they can shelter them, especially at home, is that you're going to get more points, I think, if you're an assist guy, probably. I mean, one one of the things that's really hurting Matthews is that his line mates aren't converting. His linemates are not scoring when he's giving them the puck. And he's taking a lot. I bet percentage-wise, he's taking a very high percentage of the shots that that line's taking. So he's going to have more goals than assists. And if Hyman and Brown are as snake-bitten goal-wise, although Hyman has obviously been more productive of late, it's going to hurt the assist totals for Matthews. So I, that's, I'm starting to lean towards maybe Marner's going to lead the team in scoring, but Matthews is going to be way ahead in goals. But see, I think it gets into an interesting conversation when you bring up Matthews' linemates. I don't know what the perfect type of player is to play with him because he's a shooter. Like Babcock's explanation of this sort of makes sense. Like Hyman is a guy who's, you mentioned this last night, and it's like obvious when you watch him. He's so hard on the puck. Like he's so aggressive. He does go and get the puck back. He doesn't need to shoot it much. Like you see him so many times just go into the go behind the net pick up the puck find Matthews in front and he shoots and he scores I don't know maybe that's more the type of player he should play with as opposed to like I think going into the season I envisioned maybe I don't know Matthews would play with Van Riemsdyk or something like that doesn't really make sense to play him with another shooter does it no and I mean that's what Babcock said it doesn't really matter who it's like the season's not about getting Matthews as many points as possible like that's not the goal for the Leafs it should be like the non-goal for the Leafs. They don't like. I don't. They probably don't want Matthews to have ninety points. Could he? If you played him with Marner and a great left winger, yeah. I mean, he could probably have eighty, eighty-five points if he was. If that was what you were trying to do with him, or you made him the centerpiece of the top power play unit, the the Leafs are so balanced that they're balancing the lines in ice time, not only at even strength, the top three lines, but also on the power play, they're balancing the ice time. Like Matthews' minutes could be higher. Matthews could play 20 minutes a game. He's only playing like 17.45 or 18. I mean, some games I look and he's like fourth or fifth on the team in, 
in even strength ice time and it's it's weird like i would play him more than that but babcock's got a really deep bench and it's working and it's really really hard for other teams to match up against i think it's actually the same sort of numbers with van reemsdijk he doesn't get a lot of minutes at even strengths either i think his points per 60 is pretty high that way i have to double check i think i looked at that at one point anyway um shattenkirk just because i feel like do you not want to talk about it it's I don't know. It's kind of it kind of becomes one of these annoying things that takes on a life of itself because if he's a name that's out there. They could use help on defense. We talked about trading, like the the prospects of trading for him. I don't know a couple weeks back. What has anything changed in your mind, like about that conversation? Like, do you see him being? anything more than kind of like a short-term answer like you mentioned if you're going to trade for him you have to sign him to some sort of short-term deal maybe two years pay him a lot Um, but longer term do you think he's like a fit to kind of solve that hole that you kind of envisioned for them in their top four he's gonna be so expensive the problem that the Leafs have is they need a top four defenseman preferably on the right side on the right side. I mean, unless Riley or Gardner is going to get traded, which is not going to happen, or they're going to move to the right side. They need someone on the right side. And there's nobody available. There's nobody, unless it's a trade. And if you're talking about a trade for a good young defenseman, like Jacob Truba or, or someone like that, you have to give up a lot. Shattenkirk, you don't have to give up a lot. You just have to give up cap space. So it's an interesting option. I could see them being players for him, even on like a mid to maybe long-term deal. I could see it certainly happening because the best part about that solution is you don't have to trade William Nylander. Or you don't have to trade, like I would be so worried about doing that when I watch him some games. It's like, he's going to be a fantastic offensive player. And that offensive depth is such a strength of the Leafs right now. Just like, what I want to do, an exercise I want to do, and I'm sure someone listening to this is probably going to go do it if I say it, but what I want to do at some point, I'm pr- probably going to wait till the spring is, project out what their cap situation is and draw in big question marks on guys like Bozak who might not be there long term or Komarov or whatever and see if you can make the numbers work on a big money defenseman the question is is Shattenkirk good enough to dedicate the term and the money to and are you going to have a better option and are you going to have a better option like I wonder I haven't looked at this yet but I wonder who's UFA in, in, in a year and a half from now because yeah, look it up. I don't know what I'm going to say in this time. I'm sitting here listening to your fish tank. Jonas has a fish tank, and it looks like there's no fish in it, but it's because he's got one blue fish that is lurking behind the rocks, and it has killed all of the other fish. It has attacked them systematically until now it's the only fish in there. He just sits there lonely every day, waiting for another fish to be dropped in the tank for it to massacre. So that's... uh. That's the story of Jonas's fish tank. I got it here. <laughs> He's ready. Who's a UFAD? I don't know if we're going to be able to remember who's left and right D off this list, but we'll try. Okay, so this is from Cap Friendly, and thank you for talking about my fish tank. It's been very upsetting. Uh, so these are some of the, right now, and this could change, obviously, because teams can sign some of these guys, but these are some of the defensemen that are right now going to be available in 2018. Mark Edward Vlasic, but he's a lefty, I believe. Uh, Jason Garrison. I'm skipping some guys who I don't think fit. 
Cam Fowler. Very interesting. I believe he's a right D. Is he a right D? Anyway. I think so. John Carlson. Uh, let's see here. Vatanen and Manson have a right D on that dog. Lucas Spiza. Ryan Murray. Jacob Truba. Cody Cece. Matt Dumba. Some of these guys are going to be RFA. I don't know. So there's some... Those are... Those are more interesting names to me than what's available this summer. Now, the one thing with that is you don't know if these guys are actually going to be signed. Um, you figure at some point, for example, the Caps will probably sign Carlson. So Cam Fowler is left. Okay. I thought it might be that way. But it, I guess the point is this is a more interesting class than this summer. Now, you can't assume that these guys will all be available but you don't necessarily just need to sign whoever's there in 2017 just because you have space. You know what I mean? Like, so maybe they wait. Let's say you don't want to give up Nylander. You don't want to give up one of your big pieces that's playing. Would you be willing? I mean, it, it looks like the Leafs are going to be pretty competitive. Would you be willing to give up a first-round pick in 2018 and say, rebuild's over, let's get a defenseman? I guess it depends on who the defenseman is. It depends on the contract. It depends on the age. Like you don't want to. They if they're going to do that, it needs to be someone who can like be part of their core and grow with their core. And I think Shattenkirk's twenty-seven. Um, I don't trade <laughs> until next week. Okay, so it'll be twenty-eight. So I don't trade for him. Like if if it's just straight. He's going to be a UFA at the end of the year and there's no contract. I don't give up anything for him. Like, it doesn't make any sense for them to sacrifice assets for a guy who could walk for a team that's not winning the cup. Um, but did that list, like the guy, some of the guys I, I named, make you think differently about it? And I think you make a really good point. If you don't have to give up the asset, which is Nealander or a pick, maybe it just makes sense to, to spend in free agency with the cap space you have. If you can get Shattenkirk on a contract too, where he's tradable, and you don't put him on a no move clause, I mean, maybe you use him for three years, and when you run into cap hell, which the Leafs are going to be in cap hell at some point, it's coming. Mm-hmm. Well, when you run into cap hell, maybe you can move him or move other pieces, or this is the only thing I don't know. So Shattenkirk's going to be twenty eight next week. Like, is he is he good enough? I mean, the best thing about him is you don't have to give up an asset. the The worst thing is you got to pay him when he's twenty eight. Is a top four of Gardner, Zaitsev, Riley, Shattenkirk, and whoever ends up being coming that third pair, is that good enough to win a cup? So I think the third pair is you either Dermot and Carrick or you sign a veteran lefty like a Ron Hainsey to like a one-year or two-year, $2 million deal. The other thing they could do is if they don't, I mean, I don't know if Shattenkirk wants to come here. There's talk, I think Darren Drager said that there's talk that he that he's interested in the Leafs. The fact the Leafs have been this good, I think, is going to bring some different names into the conversation. The other thing, too, is you don't want to, I don't know, you lock in on Shattenkirk, and then, like, what if Tavares is there in 2018? Well, and I was just thinking, when you mentioned, you know, the cap hell that they're going to be in, there are a lot of lessons they can learn from a lot of these teams that were good, and so, so and I think they are smarter than that. You can't F up. You can't. If you screw up, it's going to cost you a player at some point. Like we've seen all the players that Chicago's had to part with. Some of it's not their fault. Some of it is. You know what I mean? Like what are, we don't have much time here, but what are some of the mistakes that you think that they can avoid in that respect? Is it being too loyal to guys who are past their prime? 
you have to be I don't have a better term for this right now. You have to be a cold-hearted bastard. Like you have to be just like I I think to be a really good GM in the NHL now you got to be cutthroat nasty. You have to play hardball. Like Steve Eiserman hardball with Stamkos kind of hardball. Like you got to Kucherov, you got to fight for every dollar and you can't uh, the hockey world hates to hear it, but like it's going to become a much more cold, rational situation with contracts where it's not about loyalty it's not about i look at you know even like with the what the rangers are going through with henrik lundqvist and i wonder like maybe they shouldn't assign him to that contract because that like and henrik lundqvist is an icon in new york like he is the face of that team but he's 34 years old and he's got four more years on his deal at eight and a half million if he is average or worse it's a huge impediment to that team doing anything yeah. it's a bad comparison i'm going to make but Billy Bean in in baseball, and you've read the book Moneyball. It's not a great comparison, just because their problem was they don't have any money to spend. But he makes like cold hearted decisions where he trades Josh Donaldson right in the middle of his prime, and you can argue that that trade is bad. But maybe the shortstop they get in the deal helps them long term, and suddenly it gives them a window to be more competitive down the line. Anyway, I guess the, the point is you have to be willing to make really hard decisions, and sometimes that hard decision is saying, you know what. Paying Henrik Lundqvist, I think it's like eight and a half until he's 39 or something like that. We love him. He's an icon. We can't do it. We have this fixed budget that we can spend. There's a cap system. Sorry. like it, it, and, and it's hard. And it's going to be hard for media to kind of grasp it at first, but I think it's what you have to do. You look at Anaheim too with Ryan Kessler and how well he's playing and all the praise he's getting, but they're going to be totally pooched. Forget about they're going to be pooched in like two or three years. I mean, yeah, they've got a whole bunch of older guys on the, and I think Chicago, Chicago looks, I know some of the analytics guys have written about this. They're kind of just an average team. Like they're not, they're, they're not, I mean, I don't want to say they're not good, but they're just, they're not really, they're just another team. Like, I mean, I guess they'll make the playoffs and whatever, but you pay Kane and Taves 10 and a half each. Though that's a hard number for anyone to live up to. You give Seabrook what they gave Seabrook. There's a lot of guys on that team that are making too much money, and then you they don't have depth. Yeah. I mean, the Leafs, I, I think that depth is what's winning in the NHL now just based on what the Pittsburgh Penguins did last year with having three scoring lines. If you can do that, other teams can't hard match against that. They're not going to have three good defensive pairings. They're, most teams only have one. Most teams only have two, three, and like maybe four good defensemen. Most teams don't have, don't have more than three good defensemen. And other and coaches are getting so good at matching that they're able to pick apart the not good defensemen. And I think part of what happened with like Pittsburgh had so many good players. Roman Polak is on the third pair of San Jose. They were able to like go after that weakness. Or you look at the depth players on the Sharks in that final last year. I remember analyzing the head to heads, and the third and fourth lines, if I remember correctly, were getting killed because they did. The Sharks did not have depth of talent on those third and fourth lines. Well, anybody who's done, it's not the same thing, but anybody who's done like one of these fantasy auctions for basketball, hockey, football, if you spend big on one guy, suddenly like the rest of your team just isn't very good. You just don't have enough money. And that's the, that's what happens to GMs. Like if you're going to spend, you're going to have cap hit. So what is that? 10 and a half, 10 and a half. If you're going to have 21 million spent on two players and the cap is 70 plus Seabrook and you have to, you have to get the 23 guys the bottom of your roster just isn't going to be as good. So your team isn't going to be as good. So it's a really hard thing. What? 
I have to watch the Blackhawks now, and I got to have Hockey DB open. And like, okay, who's this guy? Ryan Hartman. Yeah, it happens. Last thing before we go, just because we we did mention it last week, uh, we talked about Freddie Goche at one point about whether we thought he was going to be an NHL player. I didn't think so at the time. We've had a bunch of games. It seems pretty obvious. I'm not. Do you think they're just trying to see him play some games so they can make a determination about his future? Because I don't see a long-term NHL player with this team. I think they don't have any other option. I mean, like the Marlies are not strong at center. Right? Who else would they call up? And well, okay, yeah. So Jonas is saying Byron Phrase. I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, they did call him up there when they had two centers out. So I guess he's the next option. The funny thing with Goche, like I think Babcock is almost lately. I'm thinking is like he's having a war of two minds in his head between old school Babcock and new school Babcock. And old school Babcock's like faceoffs. We got to win the faceoff, and we got to get the goat out there because he's big and he gets 53 percent faceoffs. And then new school Babcock is like you can really see that he's buying into some of the newer ideas. I see it. Like I think that's part of why the power play has been successful. Maybe he just turned that over to Jim Hiller, and that's why it's been successful. But I think there's a new school Babcock there, too, because Babcock wants to win. Babcock is not, does not, he cares more about winning than about convention. But he's still got those, anyway, that's like, that's a whole different rant or whatever. But I think with Gauthier, that's the old school coming out. And I also think they want to see if he's anything. Because if he's not anything, they don't have to keep him. I mean, you know, maybe... This is probably his shot. I know he's only 21 years old, but he's going to be 22, I think, in April. That's like that's when you start to know if a guy is is a guy or not. You know, we talked about development, but you're not going to development from like a completely non NHL player into like something important. I don't think 40 percent possession. I mean, you just need to watch. Like, it, it doesn't. I think they would be better off having like a fourth line of I don't know. They just reclaimed Griffith. If you had a fourth line of Griffith. Sashnikov and they'd have to play Martin but the problem with that is Babcock wants that fourth line center to do exactly what you said he wants him to win faceoffs. he wants him to kill penalties Ben Smith will basically just come back from injury and be that guy like that's that's the role like you look back to to Detroit that's what he uses his fourth line center for so it's not going to be a guy like Griffith so one of the things I put in the mailbag, someone asked me what other free agents Salif should look at. An idea I had was, and he's probably going to be expensive, but I think he might be worth the money, is that if you find a way to move Bozak and get something back, you don't take back a player or whatever, what about bringing in Martin Hansel? And then you can use him on the penalty kill. You can use him in tough minutes. He can be like a checking kind of center. He can provide some offense. He could be like a third-line center. He's good in a lot of different... And then you don't have to worry that your fourth line has to penalty kill and all that crap because you've got someone on your third line that's actually more useful that can do that. I guess that goes to what they're going to do long-term at center, whether Nylander, when he shifts over, if he shifts over. Anyway, that's a, a subject for another day. James, we will talk. we got to wrap up, so we'll talk next week, okay? Does the fish have a name? The killer fish? He actually does. Those, that's a really good question. His name is Charlie. He killed all the other ones. Charlie Manson. <laughs> it's not it's not far off. Thanks, James. Thanks for tuning in to the Leaf Report. Follow the guys on Twitter at Jonas Siegel and at Myrtle. For me, for me.